Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have in the studio today a person who's been a friend of mine for a long, long time, and I'm delighted to welcome him to Beeson Divinity School, Dr. John H. Armstrong. Welcome, John. Glad to have you with us. It is my pleasure, Timothy. I don't know how many times I've been to Beeson, but I always enjoy coming here. It's a pleasure to have you here. I was saying before we started this podcast, we could go in so many different directions because John and I have been friends. We've been involved in lots of things together. Um, say a little bit about our relationship, mm. how, how we came to know each other, and anything you want to about your own pilgrimage over the years. Oh my, the brief version, very, very brief. We met because I was attracted to Timothy to your vision of mission and to your vision of Christian unity and mission. And this was back in the early 90s and I had left the pastorate, a pastor of 20 years in the Chicago region after growing up in the Deep South. Wheaton grad, Wheaton grad school grad and uh, church planter and felt the call to mission. Um, I had become more reformed in my theology over those years, but I was disappointed, honestly, with a lot of, of, of the failure, I thought, of vision of reformed people for mission. And I was looking for someone who not only had a heart for mission, who loved this theology, but who loved ministry and ministers and who wanted to work with Christians across a wide spectrum of the whole Christian church. I'd encountered John 17 back in the early 90s. It put me in a bit of a pickle because in encountering John 17 and Jesus' prayer, I was riveted with the fact that God was calling me to labor for unity. And so I was looking for someone who shared that vision, and it was you. Well, thank <laughs> so you. So I introduced myself to you and said, Timothy, we need to be friends. I need your help. I need your friendship. We have been friends. Uh, you were the leader of a, a ministry called Reformation and Revival Ministries. Yes. I was on your board for a while. Now you are a part of a ministry called Act 3, which in yes. some ways is an evolution of that earlier. Yes, it is. Say a little bit about those ministries and how your insight has grown or anything you want to about that change. Okay. Well, at Reformation Revival, it was a ministry I started in 1991 while still pastoring. was called Reformation Revival because in 1981, we had started what we called a Whitfield Ministerial Fellowship. I think you spoke at it. I did. It. We started inviting pastors and leaders in the Wheaton and Chicago area. And they grew to where we had three or four of these around the city. Moody Church hosted one in the city. We had one in the south suburbs, north suburbs, and western suburbs. So I had this network of pastors groups. And the twin emphases at the beginning were a prayer for reformation and a commitment in prayer to awakening. And I had connected those two because, as you know, I'm the product of an awakening in 1970 at Wheaton College. Mm -hmm. The Asbury Awakening that Robert Coleman has written about, One Divine Moment. I, in February of 1971, I was the very middle of the visitation that came to Wheaton. My late friend Hudson Armerding saw me as, as a leader in this movement of the Spirit and essentially sent me out to speak all over Chicago, churches and seminaries and colleges. I was 20 years old, 21 years old, going out talking about the Holy Spirit revival. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I was excited about it. So when we named the ministry, it seemed natural to talk about the Reformation and revival. The reason for the change, in short, was the more we reached into the wider church, the more the word Reformation sounded like it was more exclusively Reformed or Lutheran, and the more revival sounded like, to some people, revivalism. Mm -hmm. 
And I wasn't saying either one of those explicitly. So we wanted a name that was broader, more encompassing, and we came up with an acronym, ACT3, which stands for Advancing the Christian Tradition in the Third Millennium. What ACT3 is, in one sentence, is it's a network. It's a network of partners and missions and ministries committed to what we call relational unity or relational oneness, working together for the kingdom of God and mission. Now, when I first met you, as I think you just said, you were a Baptist pastor. Yes. And now you're an ordained minister in the Reformed Church in America. That's correct. I want you to say a little bit about that, uh, because, you know, we have a very widespread uh, interdenominational listening audience and student body here at Beeson, but I'm a Baptist, and I'm not sure I could do what you've done, John, on some issues, but I'd, I'd be interested in your talking a little bit about that. Right. I think our, our listeners would as well. The other thing, and then maybe compare these together, I remember we had some pretty, let me say, they were friendly, but they were pretty difficult conversations around the time we, we began Evangelicals and Catholics together, Yes, and you were quite critical. Uh, I was somewhat critical myself of some of the early statements, but but nonetheless felt that was a good thing. And now uh, you are almost an enthusiastic supporter of the kind of work that we do through ECT. I just wish you would talk a little bit about that. You're the same person. But uh, there have been some changes, and I think all for the better. (laughs) But talk about that. Well, thank you. Very few people actually ask me that, so I'm happy to talk about it. And in fact, in an earlier book I did called The Catholic Mystery, I have a chapter on ECT in which I'm, I'm moderately critical. But I'm definitely on the critical side, not the supportive side. And you're right. Uh, in my more recent books on unity, I have embraced ECT. First, let me answer the Reformed Church question. It's interesting. I recently spoke, Timothy, at Lewis University in Chicago on a celebration of Vatican II as a Protestant evangelical on Dignitatis Humanae, mm-hmm. the decree of the Council on Human Dignity and Religious Freedom, yes. which I personally think is is risen its head again in this recent episode in Germany yes. about taxing people. Yes. I'm troubled by the Catholic Church in Germany's response, quite frankly. All of that aside... Uh, I was asked to speak as a Protestant evangelical. When I prepared my remarks, I realized how deeply indebted I was to Baptists because of my view of church and state, which I could have never gotten from the Reformed Church in America, at least not in its older versions. Um, So why would I leave? Well, a couple of reasons. One is I found myself honestly attracted towards, and you know this history because I spoke on this at Beeson, towards the mainline denominations. That's another journey, but I, I felt that I wanted to be a renewal person in mainline settings. And I felt increasingly as I moved among the mainline that being credentialed and involved directly in the mainline was a step God wanted me to take. Secondly, it had to do with friendships, just relationships with reformed people in Chicago that that came to fruition in terms of closer friendships. Understanding the larger mission of the RCA attracted me because of the church planting vision in urban environments. And finally, I realized that, in a sense, my own Reformed theology was was coming to the, the place where I embraced this, yeah. this ecclesiology, this view of the church. And so it was really not a rejection of my Baptist roots. In fact, when they interviewed me, you'll find this humorous, I think. I was asked about pedo-baptism and how I'd changed my mind. Mm-hmm. And they used the standard text that I knew so well because I had refuted them for so long. And I said, like the household baptisms? <laughs> I said, I don't see any baptisms for sure in that text. It's like, oh, well, then you're still a Baptist. No, um, I would go differently. I would have a different argument than that. And I gave it to them and so forth. So that transition 
Uh, the second part of your question about ECT, in short, was, as you know well, I got involved in the ECT conversations. In fact, I think we were together in Virginia with Chuck Colson and John Woodbridge we in yes. that conversation. And that evening, we thought we had unity among some of our brothers. And the next day, it blew up, unfortunately, yep. Yep. publicly. But that night, my heart was changed. And what changed was I watched you and John Woodbridge especially. And then I asked Chuck Colson a question. You may remember. I said, Chuck... What was the purpose of ECT besides bringing people together? Was there, a, was there a real mission purpose? And he said, yes, there was. And that was to open prisons in Latin America to preaching the gospel. And I'm sitting there saying, now, wait a minute, that's pretty pragmatic, except I am a gospel pragmatist when it comes to open doors to preach Christ. And I investigated that. And I came to realize that, in fact, it had done that. And so it made me rethink the purpose there still be parts of it just like you where I would say in the early goes, there were things that could have been said better. But the overall process is one I openly support now. I've also gotten to know a number of the Catholics and Protestants who've been involved in ACT. And Father Oaks, who's our mutual friend back in Chicago at Mundelein Seminary, his book on Christ Wonderful. and how evangelicals yeah. and Catholics can find their center in Christ and then work about their disagreements. It's just massively important to me. I love the man and the book. You're so. referring to Father Edward Oakes, who's yes. written a number of great books, including this recent one on Christology, and uh, a great uh, thinker and a wonderful activist in our work together. I've got to talk a little bit about your current – you use the word network, and you are a networker par excellence. And one of the networks in which you've become involved and actually uh, a leader uh, is the Acton Institute – you are a senior advisor with this uh, ministry, this work. If you could just give us a general overview of the Acton sure. Institute, and then I want to ask you about a few initiatives and some publications. Okay. Well, the Acton Institute was begun 21 years ago uh, through a businessman named Chris Morin and a priest named Robert Sirico. The two of them had had conversations back in Baltimore when they were in, doing graduate work about freedom, about business, about theology, about economics. And the two of them together came to the realization that they wanted, when they ended up being both in Michigan, that they wanted to start a think tank. And now Acton has become one of the 25 largest think tanks in the United States in 21 years. It's a think tank committed to the fact that economic ideas have consequences in terms of freedom and in terms of how that freedom should responsibly, be used responsibly for uh, the well-being of people. Um, some people who look at Acton, I've met more than a few, are critical because they say, oh, we just defend the free market. Now, it's true that Acton defends the free market, but not in, in a way that says the free market regardless, without morality, without consequences, without the Christian church contributing to the free market, the ideas and the morality and the ethics that make a free market truly remain free. Mm -hmm. So it's not unlimited free market uh, capitalism, but it is a, a free market organization, a think tank. What happened that's rather unique about the development of this think tank is early on, they they gathered graduate students from business schools and law schools and seminaries. And the way I first heard of Acton, Timothy, was I was speaking at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, staying in Old Machen Hall, and I wandered down one night and looked at the board where seminaries put up all these things for conferences and events for students and graduate work. And I saw this poster, Acton Institute, so I contacted them. And I realized I knew next to nothing about economics. And number two, I knew very little about the workplace. I had been in the ministry formally since I got out of college. 
So I had worked but never managed or been an entrepreneur or any of those kinds of things. So it fascinated me that I didn't know much about this. So I asked if I could go, and they said, you can go, but not as a student, only as an observer. And you can't comment except in the downtimes. You have to stay outside the circle. So I watched these young, bright people under the leadership of priests and ministers and realized there was a synergy here between the Kuyperian reform side, in particular, the Protestant evangelical side, and its view of work with Catholics, mm. and now some Orthodox. And so I watched this unfold. I went to several of those small events, and then about seven years ago, they said, would you come to Grand Rapids and would you blog on our first Acton University, which was a larger event? I've been going back ever since. Mm. They came and asked me to take a job. I said, I've got a job. They said, well, would you work for us as an advisor and fulfill one task, which is why I'm here. Would you recruit students and faculty from evangelical seminaries as you do your work and travel for Acton University and for Kern Fellows? And uh, one of your faculty, of course, went last year. Dr. Mark Devine. Yeah, yeah. And that's had a consequence on a course he's going to offer here. And, right. and uh, what, we're, what I'm trying to do, therefore, today is to share this vision of work. I'll give a little address over a pizza lunch yeah. about the value and importance of a theology of work. And then I'll talk about acting and invite students and faculty to come. Now, you used a word a few moments ago. I'm going to ask you to define briefly. Mm -hmm. You used the word Kuyperian. Yes. You're referring, of course, to Abraham Kuyper. Correct. Who was a great Reformed theologian from the Netherlands and prime minister of the Netherlands for a while. The worldview of Abraham Kuyper has become such a formative thing. It was for Chuck Colson, our friend. Uh, you know, he was a Kuyperian to his boots. Right. Uh, not every listener will know that word or that world. Give us a just two or three sentence definition okay. of Kuiper and Kuyperianism. Well, Kuiper, you've you've told us who Kuiper is. Uh, interestingly, one quick vignette about the man: he went to seminary, became a Dutch minister in the Church of Holland, and a woman in his parish wouldn't listen to his sermons, and he called on her, and uh, she told him he was not a Christian. And uh, he took offense to that in Umbridge, but he came under conviction and was converted yeah. because of a member of his parish telling him he wasn't really a follower of Jesus. Mm. So, great beginning. So, pastors, uh, listen to those little yes, old ladies out pastors, there. Pastors may have little old ladies telling them they may not know Jesus, and the little old lady might be right. So, in this case, he was converted. And uh, he became an effective pastor, as you know. He also became a writer and began to write a column in a Dutch newspaper, influenced his church and denomination wonderfully. And I find this fascinating, Timothy. When he entered politics, he demitted his ordination and left formally the ministry of the church so that he could become a politician. Mm. He felt that the confusing of the two roles was something that ought to be avoided for the mm. sake of the church and the state. Yes. Very interesting. Yes. I don't have a problem with pastors running for office, but I think they ought to walk away from their church duties to keep it clear. The right. Catholic Church, of course, has that has developed and evolved into that view for its own priests. Yeah. I would like to see us all do that because I think it's wise. So Kuiper did that, became, as you say, prime minister. And then after he was prime minister, he continued his writing, his most pr proficient writing, both political, social, ethical and devotional and theological. He was a mm, prolific writer. He was, yes. And uh, so what? what is Kuyperianism? Well, obviously, it's a thing that he taught, thus Kuyperianism. Uh, and what he taught that I think is at the core of Kuyperianism is this Christian world and life view that says in his own words that every atom of the creation belongs to God. It's mine, says God over it. So Kuyper believed that everything we do 24-7, our work, 
our, our, our labors, you know, as I was walking in today, there was a man outside, a groundskeeper, working on the wrought iron railing and preparing to spray paint it. And I stopped and amused and I talked to him and I said, that's why I couldn't paint. I said, I never prepared it properly to do what you're doing. And we started a whole conversation. He asked me to pray for him because yeah. I've learned to acknowledge the intrinsic worth of what he's doing out there. Yeah. It's not yeah. some secondary thing to what you and I are doing in here. Yeah. That's Kyperianism. So you talked a moment ago about the economic uh, renewal of the country and the economic freedom, the market. Does the Acton Institute see a linkage between sort of economic freedom and even prosperity in some way? Yes. And religious freedom and political freedom? And if so, what is that connection? Yes. The connection is that ultimately economic freedom is another expression of the same core freedom of human dignity, of human flourishing. And yes, economic freedom will produce, um, there's a theory, an economic theory that there's one piece of pie and once you've cut it up, there is no more. I think that's an abysmal economic theory. I think we can create more pies. Mm. And and Acton would say that uh, flourishing economies can create more prosperity, not a trickle down sort of thing. But more prosperity, more jobs, and create more entrepreneurs can create more ways to make wealth and employ more people in work. And this is exactly, Timothy, what's happening in India. It's exactly what's happening in China. In China, the government is not promoting freedom so much as a freer market. The idea of freedom hasn't hit the Chinese leaders yet. I pray it will. Mm -hmm. And I believe the church will have a part in that. In some way in the providence of God, I believe the freedom of the Christian conscience, the flourishing of Chinese markets, and the oppression of the government are going to clash in ways that they're going to have to change. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I see it happening. Uh, same thing's happening in India in a different way. Whereas in America, I think we have, we still have an essential economic freedom, but I think there are things that are challenging it. And uh, this is where it gets dicey because I'm not interested in partisan political stances on this, mm-hmm. but I'm interested in all the parties and all the leaders talking about what freedom really looks like and how we flourish with economic freedom. Let me ask you another question, kind of along this line. One of the arguments against, maybe, the view that you've enunciated in some of its forms, for sure, is that what about the poor? What about the oppressed? What about the people who don't have uh, sometimes even very basic needs? How does your system or your view of the economy uh, think about that? Mm. Good question. And, and, and Acton, again, has, has its critics who will say, well, Acton is just promoting uh, the Republican agenda, the free market, and it's, it's opposing government controls because it, it never met any controls it likes. I'm not of that mindset, and I don't think everyone at Acton is. I don't think Acton is, is typical of a think tank that everybody's of the same mindset. It's a big enough tent that we have divergent opinions within the tent. But what we would say is that whatever government's role is, it's primarily to allow people to flourish with freedom including the economy. Safety nets for the poor, I believe they have their place. I believe that they also have the tendency, and even most people on the left politically will agree with this, that they have their tendency to remove incentives. Mm -hmm. And when you remove incentives, you destroy the freedom to really work and work to the glory of God. Um, But rather work becomes a kind of a killing and destroying thing. Uh, this is not an easy thing. Act, act, lord Acton, by the way, you asked me the name. Lord Acton was a, an English lord in the 19th century who was a Roman Catholic, whose most famous quote that most of our listeners will have heard, probably from a politician or someone like that, is power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Now, do you know who he was talking about when he made that statement? 
uh, Pope Pius IX, Pio yeah. Nino. Yeah. He was saying that about the Pope as a Catholic. Uh-huh. Along the time of John Henry Newman, they together were saying the papacy has got too much centralized power. And so the quote is, is broadly useful. But the idea is that too much centralized power is always not a good thing. And that's why they took the name Acton, because they want to see a, they want to see government perform a proper serving role, but not usurp too much power and thus remove personal freedom. Wonderful. We're almost out of time, John, but I wanted to ask you to say just a little bit about uh, two books that you have here. You've written a number of books, by the way, and I would encourage our listeners to go on Amazon.com where I'm sure they can find a number of your books that are available. One is called Your Church is Too Small, right? which is a wonderful statement about Christian unity. And one of these is about unity called The Unity Factor, One Lord, One Church, One Mission by Dr. John H. Armstrong. Say a little bit about that, and then I'll ask you about this other book that you've brought okay. from Acton. Well, what you didn't say about the Unity Factor is there's a forward in there by Timothy George. <laughs> Thank you. And it's a wonderful little forward in which you bring us back to William Carey, one of your great interests, of course. Heard you lecture and teach and read your bio of William Carey and appreciate it. We've actually done a conference where you spoke on Carey for me. And uh, you remind us that Carey had the same vision that I have in 1810. And it didn't come to fruition until 1910 at Edinburgh. And then the last century has been the century of churches and movements and denominations striving to find in various ways, some, some are failures, I think, but find ways to express our unity. What I did in this book, having written the earlier book that Zonervan published, uh, Your Church is Too Small, my board and friends encouraged me to write a primer. So this is like 40 pages. This you can read in 45 minutes, and it has no big words, and it has no technical terminology, and it's designed for just the ordinary person. Acton published it, and uh, it is it is designed to put in the hands of people to say, here, think about the church, its mission, and its unity, and here's something to help you do that. This is an attractive little book, and I would encourage everyone to get a copy of it. You'll enjoy reading it, and I think be informed by it. And this other book, uh, Work, The Meaning of Your Life, that's kind of some of the things we've been talking about today. Yes. It's actually by Lester de Coster yes. and uh, is very much in keeping with the mission of the Acton Institute. Do you could say just a word about that? Sure. I, I was going to say in just 30 seconds about the earlier book, The Unity Factor, one of the things Act 3 will be doing in 2013 is Saturday forums around the country in major cities. We'd love to do one in Birmingham on this principle of the unity factor where we gather Christians from different denominations and churches and teach them through story, through narrative, through testimony, through visuals and interaction in small groups and prayer, how to pursue unity on a citywide level. Tomorrow in Birmingham, I'm meeting with a leader of a city network. Wherever I go, I try to find who's the young networker who's leading the city across denominational lines to see kingdom and mission. And I'll meet with that guy tomorrow here in Birmingham. So that's coming in 2013. The book by DeCoster is is Acton's um, contribution to advancing, really, this Kuyperian vision of work. If work is what we do, and we spend more hours at our work than any single thing we do, and yet many of our listeners were taught or somehow believed, unfortunately, that work was cursed, and therefore work is only valuable to make money for missions in the church, then they have a defective view of work. Because it's not work that is cursed in Genesis in the fall. It's the toil that comes from work, the sweat of the brow, Mm -hmm. the thistles and the thorns in the ground. But we're going to work, Timothy, as you know, in the new heavens and the new earth. We've been made to work for the glory of God. And people can find, even the man out here I spoke to painting the wrought iron railings, he can find meaning. He looked like a happy guy who was enjoying his work for the glory of God when he asked me to pray for him. He just lit up. 
That's what we want. We want Christians who go to work to say, my work matters. It matters to God. It's more than getting a paycheck. It is that, but it's much more. And this book really addresses that. Again, as a little primer, easy to read, but it says it better than anything I could give you. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been my friend, Dr. John H. Armstrong. He is Senior Advisor with the Acton Institute. He's on a mission here at Beeson Divinity School today, meeting with our students and faculty, talking about some of the emphases we've discussed in this podcast today. Uh, the integrity of work, the meaning of a Christian world and life view, and uh, how to be a more faithful, committed follower of Jesus Christ in the real world. So thank you, John, for this time together and for all you're doing for the, the work of Christ throughout the world. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.